If you want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. If you happen to see in the program this morning, I'm going to be talking about exposing religious myths. It's plural, but actually we're going to look at one specific religious myth, which actually leads to all kinds of other things. Um, So what exactly, to begin with, is a myth? If you look at Webster's Dictionary, it says that a myth, it gives basically two kinds of definitions. One is that it's a traditional story that helps to explain a certain practice or a belief. Um, You think of Greek mythology, different stories that happen to be passed down to explain why people do something or why people believe something. But the main point of the definition when it's used that way is that a myth is not concerned with what's truth. It doesn't really care what's true. It's just simply there to explain something. And it doesn't really matter whether it's explaining it in a true way or not. The more common definition of a myth that we would probably think of if somebody said the word myth is that it is um, just a an unfounded or a false belief. It's something that you believe that's not true. Therefore, it's a myth or I believe it, but there's no basis for it. So it can be considered a myth. That's generally the way we think of the word myth when we think about it today. There is now an entire television series dedicated to this topic of myths called Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel. And if you go to their website, it says it's a tough job separating truth from urban legend. But the Mythbusters are here to serve. Each week, special effects experts Adam and Jamie take on three myths and use modern day science to show you what's real and what's fiction. I've never actually watched the show, but it says on there that, you know, basically a lot of what they look at is different stunts or movie things, see if it could actually happen, if it's true, uh, that kind of thing. But the whole premise of the show, the only way the show would work is if people actually cared to know what's myth. The whole premise is that they assume people actually want to know, is this true or is it a myth? And so they do all these experiments to try to determine if it's true or not. On their website, the example they used was a cell phone rings while you're pumping gas. If you answer it, will you blow up or is that a myth? That kind of thing. Okay, but the point is that people want to know what's true or what's a myth. And then the question is, what do you do with people that once they learn something they believe is a myth or once they know that something they believe is not true, they still persist in doing it? For example, let's just, let's say there's somebody that believes that fire is neither hot nor dangerous. Okay, and they, they really believe that fire is not hot, it's not dangerous. Well, that's a myth. That isn't that doesn't agree with the the real situation. That doesn't agree with reality, because we all know in reality fire is hot and it is dangerous. I have an uncle that's a firefighter. He knows that. Okay, we we all know that fire is hot. It's dangerous. Now, if you explain that to this person. And he still persists in that. You would call such a person delusional or irrational, that an irrational person then is somebody that believes something that doesn't agree with reality to believe that fire is not dangerous, does not agree with reality. So that would be a delusional person. And for his own safety, you would try to explain that to him. You would try to keep him away from anything that could cause a fire to keep him safe, to keep people around him safe. 
So a delusional person then is somebody that believes myths, even though they know they're not true or even though it goes against what is reality. Well, today I want to bust, if you will, I know that's probably not grammatically correct, a religious myth that is extremely popular today, even though it is irrational. It goes against what is reality, what is true. And that myth is that it is actually possible for a person to not believe in God. That there are people who do not believe in God or that there are people who actually believe you can't know whether there is a God or not. And so that's the myth that we're going to look at today from Romans chapter one. That is, this is a very, very popular myth that people can either not believe in God or believe that you can't know whether there is a God or not. Uh, For example, Starbucks. I was at Starbucks Friday and I love going to Starbucks. I had a it was a. Lately, they've been putting on their cups little uh, sayings or quotes or different things. And the cup I had Friday night had a quote from a musician who I'd never heard of. So I looked him up online. His name is Yasu Nidur. I'd never heard of him. He's an African musician and an article in Rolling Stone. Yes, I looked at Rolling Stone to prepare for a message at church. Don't tell pastor. Uh, It said he is in Africa, quote, perhaps the most famous singer alive. And the quote on the cup was this. Said people need to see that far from being an obstacle, the world's diversity of languages, religions and traditions is a great treasure affording us precious opportunities to recognize ourselves and others. Now, disregarding the languages and traditions part and focusing on the comment about religions, what that means is or what he is saying is that it's a good thing that there are many gods and many systems of beliefs in all of these different gods, because that's what the essence of a religion is. It's a belief in a divine being and a system of worship or obedience to that divine being. So what he's saying is it's a good thing that there's many of these. Well, if there's many gods, that basically means there is no God, because by definition, God is a superior being over everything. So if there's many of them, then what you're really saying is there isn't any. So this is a very popular thing. And I I don't think that I need to tell you that it's not just a musician from a continent on the other side of the world. But this is popular in our culture and our society, the things we see, the people we come into contact with. I heard recently I was at a high school basketball game and I heard a couple of girls behind me talking. I turned around. They looked like they were probably eighth, ninth grade or something. They were talking about whether they believed in God or not. So this is not a just a foreign, an intellectual. This is from the man on the street um, to high school kids. Everybody thinks about whether you can believe in God or not. And the myth that we are looking at then states that there are people that believe there is no God or there are people that believe you can't know if there is a God or not. The truth, however, is that from the average person on the street who never thinks about God, except when he's very angry or when something bad really happens, then he thinks about God or to the intellectually brilliant atheist philosopher or to the searching agnostic who's trying to determine whether you can know if there's a God or not. Everybody believes that there is a God. Not only do they believe that there is a God, but they believe that there is one God to whom they are personally responsible. And that's the truth that we want to look at today. The word from that one true God, the Bible, 
very clearly tells us that this is the case, that everybody believes there is a God, not only that there is a God, but that they are personally responsible to him. And we're going to look at Romans chapter one today to see how the Bible teaches us that. To start with, just to get an understanding of what Paul is saying in the book of Romans, the theme, if you will, or the main point of the book of Romans is found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter one, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So he says this, this, this gospel is the power of God is to everyone who believes Notice the word believes, and it's to everyone. That's why he says Jew and then Gentile, so he's including everyone. Verse 17 says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous or the holy or the just will live by faith. So what Paul is saying, or the whole point of the book of Romans, is that there is a gospel that's from God, it's to everyone who believes in it, all over the world, that's a righteousness from God to man. Well, if you look at verse 18, it starts out talking about the wrath of God. And if you think you can say, well, how in the world does Paul jump so quickly or so immediately from the gospel, the good news of righteousness and God giving me something? How does he jump from that to the wrath of God? That's what we're going to look at today. Why does he go from that? Verse 18 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So first, we're going to notice a couple of things about this wrath of God. First, we see that it's universal, that this wrath, verse 18 says, is against all godlessness and all wickedness. So God's wrath then is for everything everywhere that is godless or anti against God, disobedient to God, anti God. God's wrath or anger is against that everywhere Because it's universal. It's to everything that is anti-God. The second thing we see about this wrath is the cause of it. And the cause of it is an unrighteous suppression of the truth. Verse 18 says that these men, these anti-God men, or these godless, these wicked men, verse 18 says they suppress the truth by their wickedness. What does the word suppress mean? It's used to translate a Greek verb. It's an excellent translation of the verb, but the verb also carries the idea not only of suppression, but of possessing, of retaining within somebody. So what Paul is saying is that these people are suppressing this truth that they have. They're suppressing something that they have because the idea carries something of possession. So these people possess something that they are suppressing or trying to restrain. But the idea, because they retain it, says that they cannot ultimately or they cannot finally or completely get rid of it. They can't completely suppress this truth that they possess. Well, what is this truth? What is this truth that they possess that because it says who suppress the truth by their wickedness? What truth is it that every man possesses that they are trying to suppress or get rid of? And we'll see that in verse 19, verse 20, verse 32. First, let's look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, speaking of all men, because we saw in verse 817 that it's to everyone, to Jews and Gentiles. So this truth then is to all men. So verse 19 says, since what may be known about God is plain to all men, because God has made it plain to them. So this truth that man has that he's trying to suppress 
or to get rid of is truth that is known about God. It's truth about God. And God has made this made this truth plain to him because it says in there what may be known about God is plain to them, which means it's very evident. It's clear. They can't miss it. They can't escape this truth. It's evident all around them. The word around them, it can be translated actually everywhere around them. So this truth that they have is evidence everywhere around them that they're trying to suppress. And Paul is clearly telling us then also that we cannot or we do not produce this truth by our own. So if you ever hear an agnostic say, well, man can't know that there is a God, or you hear somebody say, man can't really know there's a God. Well, that's true only in one sense, that I can't know by myself whether there is a God or not. God has to reveal himself to me. If there is a God, he has to show me that he is there. Well, Paul very clearly says he has done that because it's plain everywhere around them. So they have a truth. Every person then has a truth. God has guaranteed that every person possesses some kind of truth or knowledge about God. Well, what kind of truth do they possess? Verse verse 20 tells us what this truth is that God guarantees that we possess because it's everywhere clear to us. Verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men, all men, are without excuse. So what kind of truth then is it that man possesses about God? Excuse me. We see that it is God's invisible qualities, it says, his eternal power and his divine nature. Well, this then is a very extensive amount of truth. So if you if you look at this and you see invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, and you study what that means, we see that man actually knows a lot about God. That because we know his invisible qualities, because we know his eternal power and his divine nature, that's a lot of information or truth that man possesses about God. One theologian says that we know the divine perfections is what he says that this knowledge of the truth of God is his divine perfections. Well, what is that? It's his existence. The fact that he exists. It's his infinity. The fact that he is over and around all things, all where, always and everywhere present. It's his deity because it talks about his divine, divine nature. It's his sovereignty because it says we see his eternal power. So we see all kinds of things about God. And if you look elsewhere in this passage, as we'll see, we see the glory of God. For it talks about this truth as being the knowledge of the glory of God in verse 23. So this is the truth then that man possesses. God in verse 19 says that every man has truth about God because it's clear everywhere around him. Verse 20 tells us what that truth is that we know about God. We know that God exists. We know that God is eternal. We know that God is infinite. We know that God is everywhere present. We know that God is in control of all things. That's a lot of truth about God that Paul here is saying that every man knows, that it's plain to them. Well, how is it plain to every man? Because there's lots of people, as I'm sure you well know, that say, I don't know if there's a God or I know there's not a God. So you say, well, how then can it possibly be said that it's plain to every man that God exists, that he's eternal? that he's infinite, that he's over everything. How then can that be said? Psalm 19 tells us in verses 1 to 4, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they, that is the skies, the heavens, the work of God's hands, day after day, they pour forth speech. 
Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where there that is nature's voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So clearly this knowledge of the truth of God is made plain in nature. That creation, if you will, or nature, the things around us, the psalmist says the heavens, the skies, um, it displays knowledge of God. It displays, it says, declares the glory of God. So God has guaranteed that every man everywhere will possess the truth of the existence and the divine nature and the eternal power of God by his creation. So then we see in Romans 1:19 that every man has some truth about God. We see it's plain to them that it's clear that they know it. It's not a mystery or it's not hidden or it's not hard for them to understand. And we see in verse 20 that that truth includes that God exists, that God is eternal, that he's infinite, that he's over everything. And we see in Psalm 19 that the reason it's clear is through creation. And Psalm 19 there is describing creation in general. It describes the heavens, the earth, everywhere. And it says it's to all the ends of the earth. So we know what this is talking about every person. But it's talking about creation in general. Well, far more than creation in general, but man in particular knows this truth. Because there's something different about man from the rest of all creation. And we see that in Genesis 1.26. We see that man is created in the image of God. What does that mean? Genesis 1.26 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he, that is God, created man. Male and female, he created them in his image. What does that mean to be created in the image of God? Among other things, it means we have the ability to have relationships. If you study the passages in Genesis and throughout Scripture, God had relationships before he created man. How? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit related to each other long before he created man. Part of being created in the image of God is that we also have that ability. Another part of being created in the image of God, as we will see later, is that we have a certain knowledge of a decree of God. And we'll get into later what exactly that is. But we have a knowledge of certain things that are true because God exists. And that is why if you go to the most remote, undiscovered, remote place, there is some kind of concept everywhere of right and wrong. Why is that? Why is it that people who have never seen a Bible, never heard the words Jesus Christ, have some kind of concept of right and wrong? Because man is created in the image of God. It is innate within them. They have that knowledge that there's some kind of, of system of things that are good or things that are bad everywhere. It's clear throughout all the earth, it says. So because of creation in general and because we specifically as creatures created by God in the image of God are always and everywhere confronted with the truth of God, every person everywhere at all time, because he is in the image of God, because God has said he has made it plain through creation, everyone Everywhere, all times, has knowledge that God exists. And we'll see later, they also have knowledge that he is a personal God. And because he is a personal God, they are responsible to this God. Notice, if you will, Romans chapter 1, verse 32. It says, although they know God, although they know God's righteous decree. Well, what do they know about God's righteous decree? Romans 2, Paul describes it a little bit more. We know that the Jews who had the law of God, they, we know they had the law because they had the Ten Commandments. They had all these 
these laws, the Levitical, you know, all these do's and these don'ts in the Jewish system. But Paul in Romans 2 says even Gentiles or even people who don't know the law of God as we know it in Scripture, every person within them has some kind of knowledge of right or wrong. It's written in their hearts, Paul says. Well, what is that? That's because they're created in the image of God. That's because they are created being made specifically in the image of God. That's so they have a knowledge of his decree. Verse 32 says, so they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things will look at the such things later. But it's who, those people who deny God, those people who sin, those people who do such things, they know they deserve death. And they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. So they know there's a God. They know this God has some kind of a decree or they know that there is some kind of system of right and wrong, of good and bad. And they know when they go against this system or they know when they do that, which is not good or that which is bad. They know that they deserve death. Paul very clearly says that in Romans 132. So then what do what do what kind of knowledge or what kind of truth then do we have that man possesses? Well, first, we know that it's every man. We've seen that it's clear to every man all over the world. We know that it's truth about God, that God is given to man because man can't make up truth about God. God has to show it to him. So how did he do that? We've seen it's through nature all around him. Creation in general, mankind specifically because he's created in the image of God. So they know have, it's very clear to every man. And the truth that's very clear to every man everywhere at all times is that God exists that he's divine, that he's infinite, that he's eternal, his power, his glory. And they also know that he has a decree and they know if they go against this decree, they are deserving of death. So they know it's a personal God, not just some kind of of mystical fate or just some kind of thing that runs everything or laws of nature, if you will. But they know it's a personal God that when they go against him, they're deserving of death. Well, that's a lot of knowledge of God. Now, to be clear, that that knowledge does not save anybody. There's no knowledge of Jesus Christ there. There's no knowledge of a crucifixion that we heard this morning. There's no knowledge of how to get a relationship with that. But they do know there's a God. They do know that he's a personal God that they are responsible to. So, (coughs) excuse me, Paul then is very clear that this knowledge is clear, that it's understood we can't miss it. Going back to that word suppress, which includes the idea of possession. We can't miss it. We possess this. And even when we do suppress it, the word still means we still retain it. We can't get rid of it. It's in our face everywhere all the time. So what man does, though, is he denies that truth. And this is why I say it's irrational to not believe in God or it's irrational. It's illogical to say there is no God because it goes against reality. Now, somebody that's suffering from schizophrenia or delusion or paranoid delusion, these mental disorders that believe things are true, that go against reality. We want to tell them the truth because we love them. We're concerned for them. We want to help them to see to see, hey, no, this this is not the true world. This is not the real world. But such people are considered to be irrational or illogical. Well, the same way is is true spiritually is when we deny what is real, when we deny what is clear, what is plain everywhere, and that is the truth of God's existence and my responsibility to him, I am at that point an irrational being. I don't make sense. I'm not thinking clearly. So we see that man deludes himself by suppressing the truth that he already possesses. And Paul calls this suppression of the truth, if you will, an exchange. 
So he says that we as creatures in God's image, we have knowledge of God, but we suppress it by exchanging the truth for a lie or a myth or a fabrication, something that we make up that's not real, that's not reality. This is what we exchange what's true and what's real for what we make up that's not reality. Notice, if you will, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And again, this is why I say it's irrational to not believe in God, because Paul says here that it's futile thinking, it's foolish thinking, it's irrational thinking. They're going against what's clear everywhere around them. They're going against reality. They're trying to believe something that's not true or that's not real. So Paul very strongly tells us that we know God. God has made it clear to us and we're responsible to him. But instead of believing that, instead of accepting that there is a God, instead of accepting that there's a God that I'm responsible to, we exchange that, he says. And we exchange it for images or things that we make. We twist and pervert this truth. We deny this truth and exchange it for something that we want to worship. Verse 25 says, Romans chapter 1, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth that they have, that they possess, every man everywhere, for a lie. And worshipped, it says, and served created things rather than the Creator. So we see that the Creator has, through His creation, shown us that He exists, that we're responsible to Him. But the creation, instead of accepting in verses 21 and 23, instead of accepting that truth and being thankful for for that knowledge, says they exchange that for a lie and they worship this, these things that God has created instead of the person who has created them. That's what Paul is saying in verse 25. So the whole of our lives then in sin and unbelief. Or to put it positively, instead of in unbelief, in belief of a myth or a lie that we have created for ourselves is a running away from the obvious. We're running away from reality. We're creating a fantasy world for ourselves where there's no God to whom I am responsible. And that's the point. They're trying to create a world. We, I, you try to create a world where I am not responsible to a God. And this, Paul says, is irrational, delusional futile, foolish thinking because of this delusional irrationality. I'm sure you've all heard the term humanism. The essence or the basic aspect of humanism is that humanity is the be all end all that I am autonomous or I am self ruled that to make that humanism. The whole goal is to make humans free, truly free, truly superior. That's the whole goal. But because they're futile, because they're foolish in their thinking, what they're actually doing is destroying humanity. Because we've seen that humanity is a creature in the image of God, created to glorify, to bring thanks to God for the knowledge of God that he has. So when I, as as a self-ruling created being or a humanist, when I try to get rid of God, Instead of enlightening or instead of freeing or instead of making man more more powerful, I'm basically destroying humanity. That's the that's the foolishness that they take something that they're destroying because they have believed a lie, because they have denied the truth that they have. 
And instead, they worship themselves. They worship things that they create. Paul says there that they, um, excuse me, verse 25, excuse me, 23, that they made images to look like mortal man, birds, animals and reptiles. Notice what Paul does here. He starts from the end of creation, man, the final act of God's creation, the height or the, the best that God created. That is man in the image of God. And he works backwards. So he says man is taking things to look like man. They're worshiping God's creation images. So it's backward thinking is what the point that Paul is trying to make. The question then comes up, at least I have often thought this. Why, after Paul talking about this gospel, we've seen why, why then that he goes to talking about wrath, because man takes this truth that he has and denies it. So the creator then is angry at his creation because he's taken the knowledge that he's given him and he's twisted it. He's denied it to worship this made up world that he's made where there is no God, where there is no personal God to whom he's responsible. So therefore, we see why Paul's talking about wrath. But why does he then go from that to talking about homosexual relations? Why does he use that as an example? Why does that fit in with this? And I've often wondered that. And I believe it is to demonstrate the fact that man, when he denies the truth of God seen in creation, that's so clear everywhere around him that he can't escape. He's going against nature. He's going against the created order of things, because instead of worshiping the creator, he's worshiping things that the creator has made. So he has backward thinking. He's doing things that are unnatural. He's worshiping things that are made instead of the person who made him. So Paul is demonstrating using this description of this passage of those who follow their own created myths instead of the glorious truth of God. Verse 24 says, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful in the sinful desires of their hearts. So here's the pattern. God has guaranteed that man has truth of his existence. God has guaranteed that man knows that he is responsible to this God that he knows exists. Man denies that truth and says, no, I'm going to create my own truth where there, if there is a God, it's not a personal God that I'm responsible to. And I'm going to go that way. So then God says, OK, you go that way. You follow this fanciful, created, mythical world that you have created and you go that way and we'll see what happens. And this de- horrific description from verse 24 to the end of the chapter is what happens when we do that. That this is the essence of sin is unbelief, that all of these different sins here begin with the exchange of the truth for a lie. It begins with unbelief in God. It begins with a belief that there is no God to whom I am responsible. And the outcome is all of these different things that we see in the rest of the chapter. So Paul then uses this example here in verse. uh, He says they became fools. Um, They exchange this because of this backward thinking. So God says, go ahead, go your own way. And then Paul begins to describe what happens in that situation. And so he takes this um, idolatry, if you will, because instead of worshiping what's true, we're worshiping what we create to be true. Mostly ourselves. That's why self-autonomy or self-rule or I'm in charge of myself. It's my purposes, not God's purposes that matter. It's my goals. My my it's the direction I want to go. That's all that's real. That's all that's true to me is whatever I determine to be true because I'm my own God, small g. That's idolatry. That's the essence of idolatry. So Paul then uses this these relationships as an example of that idolatry. 
These these relations that he describes here, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's why they do these things. That's why Paul uses this as an example, because it's a very clear example of something that's unnatural. Because Paul whole, Paul's whole point here is saying that it's natural that God has through nature demonstrated the truth of his existence. So it's unnatural or it's irrational. It's unreal for man to deny that. Well, a very clear example of that is a, of going against nature is the description on verse verse 26. God gave them over to shameful lust. Women change natural relationships for unnatural one in the same way. The men also abandoned natural relationships with women were flamed with lust one for another. So he's describing un, a very clear picture of unnatural acts, things that go against the created order or the way that God intended things to be. That's why he uses that as example. It's a very clear picture of something that's unnatural. But we mustn't think then that this is the only example of irrational behavior, because it's not. Paul begins with that because it's one of the most clear examples of unnatural behavior. But notice this list that he goes on to to explain here. He talks about people being filled in verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. And he describes greed. He describes envy. He describes murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways of doing evil. So it's not just this stark, very clear picture of unnatural things that he begins with, but it's all kinds of sin. It's every sin. And where does that come from? Where do, where do all these things come from? It brings to mind the words of Christ from Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, where Christ says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Sounds like we're rereading Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? That's where all these things come from. It begins with the original exchange of truth of God's existence, my responsibility to him for a lie that there is no God, or there's not a God that I'm responsible to. That's where all of these things begin, begin with. So then what is the answer to this problem? We see that man has this truth. Every man everywhere believes in God. That it is not possible for any man to not know that there is a God. Paul states it as a statement of fact. They know God. Now, they don't have a relationship with them. It doesn't mean that they have a relationship with God, that they know Jesus Christ, that they know how to gain access to that God, that they know how all the details of it. But we do know that every man knows that God exists, that every man knows that he is responsible to God. We see that Paul makes that very clear. So how do we fix this problem then of this exchange, this denial of that truth, this mythical world in which they're living? How do we answer that problem? We go back to Romans chapter one, verse 17 and 18. And we see that there is a need for a re-exchange, if you will. The original exchange is denying the truth, making this lie or this fanciful world and following that. So the answer is this gospel that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, of God's holiness and righteousness from the creator to the created being. So they re-exchange then this denial of the truth and accept the truth that they originally possessed and through scripture, we see then how, how what the gospel is It's not demonstrated in nature. We know there's a God, but the gospel we see through scripture, how to get a relationship with this God that we know exists. 
Well, what does all this have to do with us? One, as Pastor finished this morning saying, there are only two types of people. People that believe in Christ, people that don't. In our situation, people who believe that there is a God, that they are responsible to, that respond to that knowledge and bringing glory and thanks to him or people that do not. To those who do not, we see that there is a need for a re-exchange of getting rid of the lies that they have believed, believing the truth, that there is a God to whom they're responsible. That knowledge that they still retain no matter how much they try to get rid of it. To me as a believer... To me, who has already made this this re-exchange, the truth of that, this truth of God, that every man knows there is a God, gives me confidence to share my faith with anyone at any time in any place. No matter how knowledgeable the person might be, the, the most knowledgeable atheist that studies all kinds of philosophy to the man on, you know, that I buy gas from or at the grocery store that's cutting my hair or the, the two high school girls at the basketball game who are discussing whether they believe in God or not. Every person believes in God. So that gives me confidence that I have something to work with when I talk to somebody. Pastor just finished his series on sharing your faith. Well, this gives us confidence to do that, and we don't have to be intimidated. It's not popular to believe in absolute truth today. It's not pos- popular to believe in God And that God sent a son and that he killed him and that he rose from the dead. People make it sound like we're the irrational ones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks of this in verse 20. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom, which Paul describes in Romans 1 as futile, foolish thinking because they've denied God. For since in the wisdom of this world, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe the foolishness of what was preached, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the gospel. Okay, people make it sound like we're the irrational ones. We're not. Okay, we believe what is real. We believe in reality, that there is a God who exists, that I know exists, that I know that I'm responsible to. And I have accepted that truth. And through God's grace, I have found a relationship with him through his son. I'm a sane, rational person because what I believe agrees with reality. But people that don't accept that, Paul says, they make it sound like we're the foolish ones, but they're not. And that gives us confidence that we don't have to feel like we believe some myth, that we believe some mythical story of God and sending a son and a resurrection That we're not the ones believing the myth, but it's the people who deny the truth, who create a world where there is no God, who create a world where there is a God whom they're not responsible to, that they're the ones that we have to, in love, say, no, you don't agree with what's, you don't, you're not agreeing with reality. So how do we go about doing this? Well, when we have conversations with people, we we try to get past all these other extra things because we see then that this knowledge that there's not a God or this denial of the knowledge of God leads to all kinds of other errors in belief about God. And they may say, well, there is a God, but I'm not responsible to him. Or there was there was Jesus, but he's not the son of God. The whole thing that we do when we witness is we get past all that and we get to the root of the problem, which is their belief or their denial and their responsibility to a personal God who created them. And we can do that with anyone because everyone knows that intuitively because they're created in the image of God. So it gives us confidence to take this gospel that we have, to share it with anyone, no matter how wise they are. Paul speaks of wise people and philosophers, but their reasoning is foolishness because they don't agree with what's reality. They don't agree with the fact that there is a God that they are responsible to. 
So as an unbeliever, because there, because I, you know there is a God, that truth demands that you have a relationship with him, which is accepting the good news that God has provided a way to do that. As a believer, the application is we thank God because in Romans 1 we see that it, it should make us thankful. We thank God that he has so clearly and evidently manifested himself to us. And then it gives me confidence to share that truth with those who don't accept it, who deny it, who are living irrationally in unbelief. Let's pray. We come to you, God, with gratitude in our hearts. We are so thankful that you have in your mercy guaranteed us possession of the truth of your existence everywhere around us. It's so clear to us. We thank you that you have given us very detailed information in your word of what to do with that knowledge. Of how to get a relationship with that God that we know exists. That we can exchange this lie that we have so foolishly decided to believe and accept the truth, the belief in the only true God. We thank you for that as believers. But Father, our heart also breaks in in pity and in sorrow for those who are still living and deluding themselves to believe a lie that have not accepted your existence, that have not accepted their personal responsibility to you. Help us to, in loving compassion, confidently seek to help them see that they're following a myth and not truth, to give them clearly as we can the truth of the God who created them, who desires to have a personal relationship with them, that they are personally responsible to, so that they can worship and serve you and not worship a lie that they have created. Give us the confidence to do this for your honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.